welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal in the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Merod, and this week on Streams of Progress, we have a special episode done in collaboration with Young Arab Leaders. On this episode, I sat down with Najla Al-Midfa, CEO of Shira, Charge Entrepreneurship Center, and Vice Chairwoman of Young Arab Leaders. We covered Najla's prestigious career working at the likes of Shell, McKinsey, and PwC, prior to becoming the supporter of entrepreneurs she is today, with the work she's doing at Shira. We explored her own past entrepreneurial venture and the multitude of initiatives she's currently a part of, including Young Arab Leaders. Lastly, given our current global pandemic, we highlighted the various COVID-related initiatives she's involved in, supporting entrepreneurs developing various solutions. So let's dive right in. On today's episode, we're sitting down with Najla Al-Midfa, the Vice Chairwoman of Young Arab Leaders and the CEO of Shara, Sharjah Entrepreneurship Center. Before we get into what Young Arab Leaders is, all the great things that Shara is doing, let's get to know you. Let's... Talk about your background. Maybe you can let us know where do you come from? Sure. I'm actually, I'm Emirati. Uh, I was born and brought up here in the UAE. So I went to school, high school here in Dubai, actually, and then went abroad uh, to study uh, in the UK and then later on in the US. But the majority of my life has been spent here. And uh, my hometown is Sharjah. And uh, this it's, it's nice to kind of have come full circle. This is my first time actually working in Sharjah. So I studied in Sharjah sort of for elementary school, then went to high school in Dubai and then, you know, studied abroad and worked in Dubai and worked abroad. And this is my first time back, you know, and it's, it's really great to kind of be home and to be able to contribute to, to the city I call home. So when we're talking about education, you said in the UK, but then even in the US, you went to Stanford, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I went to Stanford for my MBA. That isn't all you did abroad from what we see in terms of to all the work you've done, you've worked for a lot of well-reputed businesses from McKinsey, Shell, PwC. I'm not sure where we want to start, but maybe you can yeah. <laughs> just give us some takeaways maybe from those experiences that you apply now to a lot of your leadership work today. Yeah. I mean, my first job was in PwC. So I studied uh, in the UK. I studied computer science in the UK as an undergrad and then came back and worked at uh, PwC and Shell, uh, mostly on sort of on the PwC side, it was more on the consulting side. And then in Shell, it was more financial analysis. Um, and But, you know, it's funny, people often say that, yeah, your first job has very little bearing on your career as a whole. But I really do look back and feel like all my jobs, all, all the roles that I've played in these different organizations have definitely helped to make me uh, and shape me into the person I am today in small ways, small and subtle ways, whether it's, you know, the mentors that I had in the organization, whether it's some of the trainings that I went through in those organizations, whether it was seeing how those organizations were managed. Um, when I think about uh, the impact of those roles today in my current role, where it's more about guiding and working with entrepreneurs, uh, I think perhaps my uh, last role in the corporate sector, which was with McKinsey, 
probably played uh, the biggest uh, part. And again, I guess it's true for any consulting firm uh, because, you know, I think what the skill set that you leave with is really the uh, the biggest skill set is a problem solving skill set. Mm-hmm. You know, you're thrown into an industry that you're not necessarily fully familiar with. You need to uh, be able to adapt really quickly and learn really quickly the basics of uh, the industry and then understand some of the key challenges that they're facing, learn how to break that problem down and, you know, come up with solutions. Uh, potential solutions for those challenges, you know, obviously um, in collaboration with the client side and with your own team on the consulting side. So I think there there was definitely, uh, again, a lot of soft skills that I learned there that I have transferred to the work that I do today, whether it's working directly with entrepreneurs or whether it's thinking about the strategy for Shirai as an organization. That said, funnily enough, I do think also there have been skills that I've had to unlearn that I learned uh, from the corporate sector that are obviously less uh, relevant, um, not less relevant, but, uh, you know, the, when, when you're actually, I, I think of Shira as a startup and obviously we're working with startups and I just think uh, we have a bias to action naturally when you're in the entrepreneurship side, on the entrepreneurship side of things and, uh, you know, less interested in uh, creating decks and slides and narratives and storylines. And so uh, I think that's one of the things that I definitely had to learn, unlearn and, you know, adapt to more, just get it out there, get the MVP out there, let's test it and so again, it's a different mindset, uh, but nonetheless, you know, I look back and I'm very grateful for uh, for the learnings I've had um, along my career. So, Shira, you, you practice what you preach like, in terms of yeah. you are a startup at heart and you also support the startups. We really are. I mean, uh, you know, it's, I mean, okay, I I guess, I mean, since we're a a government entity, I I think the the fair and transparent thing to say is obviously we don't have the financial pressures that a startup would have. And that's obviously a big part of it. But in general, you know, to take an idea and like five years ago was an idea, you know, it was born in 2015, 2016, uh, you know, when we were famously, we were, we were on our way down uh, Sheikh Abdur uh, Al-Qasmi, who's actually the chairperson of Shira and myself and a few friends had gone to uh, uh, climb Kilimanjaro and on the way down from, on the descent, uh, a lot of, at that time I had kind of uh, left uh, uh, Khalifa Fund, which was my previous role. I was back in charge. I was working on Khairat as a social enterprise. And I was talking to her a lot about uh, Sharjah and how Sharjah had built itself up as a hub for young talent. And, you know, we talked about how, you know, obviously at the, at the time, and it continues to be a challenge, unemployment uh, in the region and what we could do in Sharjah to help uh, contribute to, to solving that. And that's where sort of the, that's the genesis, I guess, of Shira. That's where the conversation started. And then we came back to Sharjah and it evolved. And from there, you know, that idea evolved into the Sharjah Entrepreneurship Center with just, you know, initially one person and now has grown to a pers- uh, team of around 22 people and continues uh, to grow. So it really is in many ways like a startup. Um, so like I said, it may not have all the same pressures of a startup, but we've definitely been through um, a lot of that sort of M- build the MVP, uh, test it, iterate, um, see what the value proposition is for our customers as well. Um, it's in many ways the same process. 
process. And I'm pretty sure you pivot, you learn based on exactly. the cohort, exactly. you keep improving, Ex- right? Absolutely. I mean, we, we keep building it and then uh, destroying it and starting again, <laughs> saying, no, this didn't work. I, it's funny. I mean, when I think back to, uh, again, the first iteration of Shirar, you know, we thought, oh, well, it's quite simple. We'll build, you know, what uh, every other accelerator around the world does. We'll do a two or three month program, do a few workshops. They'll come in one end, come out the other end, and they'll be entrepreneurs. And then you quickly realize it's not as simple as that and that you're a little naive to think that it would be that simple. And so there was a lot that we had to do. And so, you know, then we ended up building pre-seed programs and doing community programs and inspirational programs. And so it really has been a learning journey. And even now, I don't even think we're there yet. You know, I think we continue to learn. I think the ecosystem is evolving. Um, There are a lot of different opportunities. The challenges keep changing and, and we need to be able to respond to those as well. Like you said, the program's constantly evolving as well with the, with the ecosystem, with Absolutely. everything going on. Absolutely. There's something you just hinted at. You said your previous venture, I would say that's maybe your entrepreneurial experience. Yeah, yeah. I was as yeah. the founder of Khairat. Can you tell yeah. us what uh, what Khairat was and what was the purpose of it? Yeah, Khairat was born, you know, I guess one uh, professional experience we didn't touch upon was Khalifa Fund. So when I came back from the U.S., I was uh, in the U.S. after my MBA. I stayed back for a couple of years um, and then came back to the UAE around 2010 and, enjoy, and I joined uh, Khalifa Fund, which was our national uh, you know, SME development agency. Uh, they provide both funding and capacity building services to uh, Emirati entrepreneurs. And uh, what I found over my time uh, at Khalifa Fund over those four four years or so that I was there um, was that a lot of young Emiratis would initially they'd come in, you know, with obviously their own business ideas. Um, and then I'd get to know them because we worked very closely and, we, and I'm sure they continue to do this work very closely with the entrepreneurs, almost as advisors slash consultants, um, you know, helping them develop their business ideas and the business plans and, you know, pitching it to the investment committee and so on. So you really get to know them uh, quite well because that entire process from the minute they come in with an idea until it's actually approved can take, you know, a few months. And so uh, I often found with the younger Emiratis that they would often come to me and say, oh, uh, you worked at McKinsey. How did you, you know, how did you get into McKinsey or what was it like at McKinsey? Or, you know, you applied to, you went to Stanford, you know, what was the experience like over there? Um, And I found that a lot of them were missing that career guidance. I think if you think about Emiratis and you think about the UAE as a country, it's a young country, right? Like the I mean, I, I know how it feels because my, my parents were always very supportive of my education and of my career, but I don't think my, uh, let's say my father would have been able to give me much guidance on, in terms of the kinds of companies uh, that I could apply to. Their, their, their era was so different uh, to the era that uh, we were living in. And I find that, that I found that was true for a lot of young Emiratis that they were looking for some sort of career guidance, wanting to learn more about those opportunities in the private sector, but they weren't finding it necessarily in universities because I think to some extent, university career centers still operate as a job board. You know, they'll put the, the vacancy there, but then they expect you to just apply and figure it out on your own. Uh, but a lot of a lot of students, are, again, this is true around the world, need 
people to talk to, you know, need to hear about the different experiences, need to hear what these uh, different roles entail. And so I found that there was a big gap there. And, and looking back at my own experience in the private sector, I was all often uh, one of a handful of Emiratis. Like if I looked back at McKinsey, I think there were two or three Emiratis there at the time. You know, at PwC when I was there, I was the only Emirati. So it was always, I never understood why there were so few Emiratis in the private sector when the offering was so great, the learning was so great. And obviously, we, we always put it down to the same story or narrative, which is, oh, Emiratis expect higher pay, and that's why they don't want to work in the private sector. And I think that's just, a, again, it's a, just a simplistic uh, explanation, but it's a lot more nuanced than that. And that's what I found that one of the, the big reasons was actually just they didn't even know that these companies existed to begin with. Nobody had provided them with that information. And so uh, I kind of felt that calling. Uh, that, you know, or that responsibility that, you know, I had been given these opportunities in the private sector, I had studied abroad, what could I do to help these young Emiratis uh, find their path in life? And that's when I uh, started Khairat. Uh, and the idea behind it was to share stories of other uh, Emiratis who had had experience in the private sector and to take um, young Emirati students and help connect them with companies in the private sector. Because there's this massive gap, you know, companies in the private sector are looking for Emiratis, and they say Emiratis are looking for job opportunities, and for some reason that bridge, that bridge just wasn't being uh, connected. And there's a disconnect. Yeah, it's a strange disconnect, because you can, I mean, it, it's clear that the Emiratis are looking for the opportunities. They're always looking for internship opportunities or work opportunities. And then when you speak to the private sector, they say, oh, we don't, we don't know where to find them. You know, I tried to play. I think that was the, the, the essence was to kind of be that bridge between uh, Emirati graduates and, and the private sector. And we did manage to, we worked very closely with um, both Sanduq al-Watan and Al-Bayt Mutawahid, which are initiatives based out of Abu Dhabi. Uh, and we managed to place um, around 100 uh, Emirati graduates uh, or students or graduates um, in private sector internships. And again, this is uh, with leading companies whether it be, you know, Bain or whether it be PwC and so on. And a lot of those internships then also can uh, convert it into full-time opportunities. Um, and then along the way, obviously, Shira also uh, came up and I wasn't able to really dedicate my time to both. Uh, but those 100 students uh, who are now obviously, in, uh, you know, employees and uh, leaders in their own fields and doing great things, I'll be watching them closely because I think in 10 years or so, I'll look back and say, you know, we played a role in their journeys and I'm sure we'll be very proud. I'm pretty sure that itself has a ripple effect, that impact of what you did in Khaira. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think so. I hope so. Going back to what you just said, I totally agree where you said there's this, let's say, myth or the thinking that Emiratis only want the higher paid jobs or they're waiting for that. And just to go against yeah. that argument, I'm pretty sure McKinsey, PwC do pay well. So I think it's more about them not knowing yeah, about the yeah. opportunity or looking into that. Exactly. It's, it's one, it's them not knowing about the opportunity. I mean, uh, I, I didn't get into the story, but actually when I first graduated from university uh, as an undergraduate, I, I came back home, this was in 2000, uh, I applied to McKinsey. At the time, McKinsey was, you know, they had just started in Dubai. They were like, I think four or five people in the office. And I applied, you know, again, starry-eyed. Someone told me that there's this company called McKinsey and it's the best company in the world. And so I think I faxed over because in those <laughs> days they were still faxed. I faxed over my my resume uh, and I actually was invited to an interview but nobody ever told me that consulting interviews are very different to your standard 
you know, interview that you have in any other corporate job that they do these case studies and so on. And because I had nobody there to really help me prepare for that and tell me about that, I actually didn't get in. Uh, I didn't get an offer. And then like five years or seven years later, whatever it was after my MBA, I reapplied it. I just, I think it was one of those things that was always stuck in my head that I really want to go there. I really want to, you know, have, get some experience in a, in a leading consulting firm. And I applied after Stanford and got in. But when I applied while I was at Stanford, I had so much help from alums, from the career center, you know, from consultants at McKinsey who would come to campus and kind of do these practice cases with us. And that, that's, just, that's the support I think that's missing over here on the ground. And so that, then it's very easy to just fall back on, as you said, the myth that, oh, well, it must be because they're expecting a higher salary. But if they, they A, they don't know that the company exists or they know, but they don't really know how to go about applying for the company and, you know, going through these interviews, then it's going to be, then the, the odds are stacked against them, whether we like it or not. Like you said, the case studies, most people would assume the interview is just going to be a straight up job interview. Your standard exactly. Q&A, exactly. It's about exactly. me. No, no, this is, it's about this yeah. case. Can you solve this problem <laughs> <Yeah>. right exactly. now? <laughs> exactly. That's what I, the shock, the first time when they gave me a pen and a paper, <laughs> this blind paper, and I was like, what are they doing? And, then the, and the question was so random. I still remember the question. The question was something like, so... Could, how would you estimate the number of golf balls in the UAE? And I thought, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't get it. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> but you know, nobody tells you that they're testing the way that you would think and that you would solve that problem. And so, yeah, again, um, you know, I look back at it now, we laugh at these market sizing questions and so on. But at the time, I really had no idea. Before I go into Shara and obviously what you're doing with Young Arab Leaders, sure. I think there's a there's a certain theme with a lot of the work you do. And the theme that I'm assuming is it's around entrepreneurship because you're also a board member of Endeavor UAE. And from my understanding, if you want to tell our audience, what exactly does Endeavor also do? Um, Endeavor is also, it's a global organization that supports entrepreneurs. Uh, But these are uh, entrepreneurs not at the startup phase, but rather at the scale-up phase. And uh, the primary benefit that they provide them with is really a network of leading mentors uh, around the world. I I mean, if you look at just in the UAE, the, the UAE chapter, so I'm on the board of the UAE chapter of Endeavor. Um, and, you know, you look at uh, the folks who are on the board, uh, leaders like, you know, again, Munalgir, Bedr, Jafar, Eli Khouri, um, you know, Asman Sultan. So a lot of really um, solid uh, business people and CEOs and leaders who actually spend time. It's not your typical board where, you know, it's, it's just you sit on the board and you have the board meetings, but it's very hands-on. And I think I'd say the same about Yale. With these sort of uh, nonprofit organizations, the boards get very involved. And so that's really the uh, the primary objective of the of the of Endeavor is to take these uh, scale-ups and to really help them 10x their growth and help them, uh, you know, become these high-impact entrepreneurs that create jobs uh, around the world. So it's been a great opportunity. It's, it's for us, you know, we partnered with Endeavor as Shara because it was a natural next step for our entrepreneurs. We're obviously at the much earlier stage. We help them with their idea generation and idea validation and helping them build their initial products and get to seed stage. Um, but for us, success would be if, you know, and, and we've actually seen it, by the way. Some of our entrepreneurs have gone on to become um, Endeavor entrepreneurs as well. Rather than replicate the wheel, you know, as they say, or rather reinventing the wheel, if the organization already exists, better to partner with them than to try and do it in-house. And so that was one of the reasons uh, that we got involved with Endeavor. And it's been a great experience. 
um, it's it's uh, really wonderful to engage with some of these uh, really passionate entrepreneurs. It's like you said, it's a natural next step. Once they graduate or they're done with the Shira program, it makes yeah. sense for them to move on and scale up further. Exactly. But also at exactly. Shira, you now do have a further stage as well, right? It's not just seed anymore. So our primary, again, this is where I was saying that, you know, we, we have been iterating for the last four years. I don't even think we finished iterating, but uh, yeah. So at one point, at one point, we did have a funnel. Uh, which was basically, um, you know, from idea through to Series A. So at one point we did have a Series A program that was focused on slightly more advanced uh, startups. And it was, you know, again, it was a three-month program. The, there was some, uh, there, were, there was a financial grant. I believe the winner uh, in the cohort kind of got a $50,000 grant. Uh, the main benefit of the program was A, the content, the mentorship and the workshop sessions, uh, and B, also the access to market uh, that we could provide. Uh, but over time, what we've uh, realized is um, the main benefit really that these uh, these Series A startups are looking for is that access to market, is those connections to potential partners or customers and so on. And so we've actually changed the program a little bit. So our focus when it comes to venture creation and venture building is on the seed stage. So it's getting you from idea to seed. Uh, but yes, we do support Series A startups, not necessarily in a programmatic way, as much as it is um, thematic, uh, I would say, competition. So we recently, we call it Access Sharjah. So we recently, for example, earlier this year held Access Sharjah with a focus on digital content podcasts like yours and, you know, publishing, digital publishing. And um, this was in celebration of Sharjah being named World Book Capital by UNESCO in 2019. And so we held that earlier this year. The winner was Little Thinking Minds, who provide uh, Arabic education uh, to schools and now also have a B2C offering, so to individuals. Um, and these are to uh, children. And uh, the winner basically got a grant of $100,000, as well as um, the opportunity to set up an office in Sharjah. So we partnered with Sharjah Publishing City, which provided free office space, as well as uh, a license. So a lot of the ones who applied to those companies Competitions were definitely further along. They weren't really seed stage startups. I would call them more along the lines of Series A startups. So yeah, there's a little bit of an overlap, but but I think um, uh, Endeavor is definitely sort of Series A and beyond. Um, it's it's not uh, pre Series A. When you say uh, there's grant funding, is there equity involved for that or is it uh, no, equity free? No, yeah, at this point it's all equity free. I think we've disbursed in total around uh, almost seven hundred thousand dollars. Uh, worth of grants um, to these uh, to these entrepreneurs at the various stages, um, and you know we 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 would like to explore the opportunity to take equity at some point, but I think initially you know we were working to put Sharjah on the map, and you know Sharjah wasn't naturally known as a place for startups, and so one of I think one of the attractions was that we were uh, providing this funding, as as you said. Uh, uh, non-dilutive funding or equity free funding and that was a that was a big attraction but i think now you know four or five years down the line and like i said we keep iterating i think we're starting to explore we're looking at exploring uh, the opportunity of having a pre-seed seed fund where we can actually also take uh, small equity stakes uh, in these startups 
but so far it's all been grant funding and the grant funding has been made possible because of our corporate partners. So we've got corporate partners like Air Arabia, Crescent Enterprises, Sharjah Media City, and Sanduq al Watan as well, um, who have all provided us uh, generously with these uh, grants that we then uh, pass on to our entrepreneurs. Those are from the different tracks, right? Because like you said, BIA yes. is the sustainability track, Air Arabia with exactly. the travel and tourism track. Precisely. So what we do is if, depending on where the, uh, what track the startup falls in, uh, we allocate the grant to that particular um particular corporates. So for example, as you said, Arabia, if we had startups in aviation, we do have startups in aviation, travel and tourism. The grant comes from Arabia, uh, but it's not just, I mean, and I, and I think what, what I'm really grateful for with the partners is, you know, obviously I'm not saying that the grant funding isn't important, uh, but it's not enough on its own. And what I really appreciate is, is that they don't, they go above and beyond, beyond the funding itself. They also provide a lot of mentorship to these startups and where possible even try to provide, you know, contracts. Um, and I think that's that's probably the biggest biggest support that you can provide. I always say the biggest support that you can provide to entrepreneurs is giving them uh, an opportunity to get into the market. And so one of the things that I'm really grateful for with our partners is that they've tried to do that as well. I think market access really can translate into a lot more than just some funding. Exactly, exactly. This is uh, when we always say there are three ways when it comes to supporting the entrepreneurs. Either you can give them cash, which is what we've been doing, you know, with the grants. You can, One of the other things that you can do is obviously you know, reduce the cost burden, try and, uh, yeah. you know, this is another thing that we've Offices done. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so Sharjah Media City Shems, for example, and as well as the Sharjah Research Park, they offer, we've partnered with them because they are actually licensing authorities and they offer their licenses to our entrepreneurs at 3000 dirhams, um, which is again, it's a great offer for the, for the startups. So that's one is, you know, giving the cash, whether it's reducing the cost burden, but really the biggest way to help them is, just giving them business and giving them access to market. Before I continue about Sharad, there's something else I wanted to ask you because yeah. you are an entrepreneur, you are a leader, a manager, but you're also on a lot more boards. So you're also on the board of directors at United Arab Bank. Actually, yes. I think you're the only female board member there. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I'm only I'm the only female uh, board member. That's also been, uh, to be honest, uh, uh, an amazing experience for me. And it's really been a learning experience. I've been on the board. I think I'm now, I've been there uh, coming up nine years, I believe, on the on the board, if I'm counting correctly. Um, so it's, it's my third term and uh, it's, you know, my, my, so where I'm a, you're usually a member of the board and then you're obviously a member of the different committees. So I've been able to rotate on different committees, whether it's been sort of the more the executive committee uh, or the risk committee. And right now, for example, I'm chairing the audit committee as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very different. You know, all my other roles have been much more executive roles or management roles. Yeah. And it's very different when you're on the board because you're actually not supposed to get involved in the <laughs> management. And as tempting as it can be, because you're so used to it, uh, to want to get involved in the, in the execution and the management and operations, um, you're, you have to remind yourself that your role is really more oversight and governance um, and, you know, protecting the stakeholders, whether it's customers, shareholders, and so on. And so it's, it's very different um, in that sense, but it's, it's been, a, again, a great experience and really grateful for the support that I've received from the chairperson, Sheikh Faisal al-Qasmi, as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, are you also a member of the Aspen Institute yeah. for Global Leadership Network? What exactly is that? 
Yeah, the Aspen Institute itself is, uh, I guess you could call it a think tank or sort of an um, educational studies organization. They're based in the U.S. in D.C. and they have a beautiful campus in Aspen, uh, Colorado, and hence the name, the Aspen Institute. Um, It was established, uh, I guess, around over 70 years ago or so, and it was meant to be similar in many ways, I suppose, to Davos. It was meant to—it's a form of a forum for sort of thinkers and leaders and intellectuals to really convene and reflect on what are the, you know, what are the values of a good society and to exchange ideas. And uh, what what I love about the program is that it's not just about reflection and exchanging ideas and discussion, but it's also that um, inspiration to act uh, and have impact. So actually, Khayarat as a project came out of my fellowship with the Aspen Institute, because it's a two-year program, it's a two-year fellowship. Um, it's so, so let me just take a step back. The Aspen Institute has several different programs. Um, the program that I was part of was called the Middle East Leadership Initiative, where they took, they take, um, 20, uh, leaders from around the Middle East region and, uh, put them through a two year program, uh, where they meet four times over the course of those two years. Uh, the, the folks that are selected, um, and it's usually again, 50%, 50% men, 50% women. The folks are usually, I'd say, in their late 30s, early 40s, and are folks who are um, at an inflection point. So they're moving, so they've achieved success by the traditional markers of success and are now thinking about significance, about what is the legacy uh, that I want to leave behind. Um, And so you meet uh, four times over the course of the, those two years. And a lot of the instruction is really, it's text-based in the sense that they, they send you a lot of readings and then you have, it's, you know, that Socratic method of kind of just discussing these readings and debating them and so on. Um, and uh, over the course of those two years, you're also supposed to work on a project uh, to tackle a challenge that you're particularly passionate about. And that's where Khairat was born. Um, and uh, also, interestingly enough, uh, to link it to this interview, that's where I met Munal Girk, she was in my uh, cohort of fellows and uh, that's where I first kind of got to know young Arab leaders so she's been part of young Arab leaders since its inception in 2004 Uh, but I uh, kind of got to know it through her uh, as I got to know her through the fellowship. So the network effect of being part of it. Yeah it's amazing I mean there are sort of I think there are over 2,500 fellows or so in in the network Um, every year every summer there is uh, an event called the annual action forum the Resnick action forum uh, where any fellow can attend. It's almost like, so think of it as an alumni gathering. So I attended it um, not last, was it last summer? It might've been last summer. I can't remember anymore, but it was either last summer or the summer before, but again, really inspirational uh, to be surrounded by like-minded people discussing some of the biggest challenges uh, that the world is facing. And, you know, in some, you obviously you don't expect to come up with an answer over the course of that weekend, but just that to hear about some of the inspirational work that some of these fellows are doing, it really inspires you to act. Um, and so, again, it's it's more of a leadership program. It's not meant to make you sort of a better CFO or, you know, teach you any technical skills. It's really about uh, producing more enlightened uh, leaders uh, for the 21st century. So it's like you said, it has a hint of, let's say, a Davos element where there is a gathering as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the fellowships, uh, the one I was part of is the Middle East Leadership Initiative. There are others like the Africa Leadership Initiative. There are others that are sort of fo- fo- focused on particular industries. So there's the finance program, for example, focused on finance professionals. Um, there's the education version. The, 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 
original version of all of these fellowships is called the Henry Crown Fellowship, which is focused on the U.S. Uh, we're all, we all go through the same process. It's very similar readings, very similar uh, style of discussion and so on. But again, it, it, who you're in with your cohort depends. It can either be geographical or it could be functional. Um, but then they have their, you know, the famous Aspen Ideas Festival. There are other conferences and convenings that they hold. Um, the fellowship programs are just one aspect of the Aspen Institute. So now that we've set up the premise of all the different things you've been involved in and you still are involved in, <laughs> yeah. before I get into more about the details yeah. of those of Shara and Young Arab Leaders, I just want to ask you, how do you manage all this? Uh, do you have any practical tips for our yeah. listeners? Like if they're yeah. involved in multiple, let's say, uh, projects, how would you, how do you manage your time? I won't lie. It, it definitely is perhaps the biggest question on my mind is always, you know, how best to manage my time so that I can, you know, fair, fairly give attention to all the different organizations uh, that I'm on. But I think, well, honestly, one of the biggest things uh, that has helped me in my transition, let's say from manager to leader is obviously building a team that you can trust and delegate to. So, I, I mean, at Shara, uh, my, my, I'm no longer, yes, we, it's an entrepreneurial organization and, you know, obviously we're still figuring a lot of things out. But in the early days of Shara, I would get involved in everything from, you know, what color chair to have to, you know, what design should be and who exactly was coming into the program. And, uh, and now, I, you know, I've taken kind of a step back from the day-to-day -day operations and I can focus much more on the strategy side of things because we've built up a wonderful team of, you know, 20 really dedicated champions of entrepreneurship. And so, so that helps a lot um, as well. But, and I think that, so that's one part of it is having the right people around you. Um, and the, the other part on your side is kind of on, on the person side is, I guess, a little bit of self-discipline as well, because as tempting as it may be to get involved in things, uh, you need to realize when, uh, when you're getting a bit too involved. Yeah, the temptation of micromanagement. Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, it's it's been a journey. I wouldn't say that it came naturally. It's something that, uh, you know, I've learned over the last few years and continue to learn. Um, uh, and I think that I guess this is something that every entrepreneur, or every founder goes through, right? As uh, initially, when you're a founder, it's a small startup, it's two or three people, you can get involved in everything, and you're passionate about the product, so you want to get involved in the product or the service, and so you want to get involved in everything. But as you scale up into a bigger organization, what the what the team and what the organization requires from you as a CEO is very different. Um, so it, it it definitely is a learning journey. And speaking of startups, what would you say is Shiraz's elevator pitch? The first step on your entrepreneurial journey. Okay, that's nice. Yeah. That's how we're positioning Shiraz. Our goal is not to say we are the, you know, be all yeah. of the ecosystem and we can do it all because, you know, that this is, again, one of the key learnings in this role has been the power of partnerships. And this, you know, Endeavor was a great example. We're not trying to be everything, but we definitely want to be the key first step. And, and we've got the advantage because we are actually, our hubs are based in uh, the American University and the University of Sharjah. And so we have that uh, uh, sort of early, uh, early look at some of the talent that's around. And we, we can almost scout that talent before they even go and start their startups. So we're not even, no longer even talking about idea stage or pre-seed stage. It's really about finding those future founders and really supporting them. And because it's not like the first idea you work on necessarily works out. But if you've got the right founder, um, at some point, they will build something meaningful, whether it's themselves as uh, an entrepreneur or whether as part of a bigger organization. Um, and so, so I think for us, yeah, that, that's where we've really found our sweet spot. 
um, is working with aspiring entrepreneurs, with young change makers, um, and being their first step on their entrepreneurial journey. And I think actually the advantage of being part of that university, you're able to actually present an alternative narrative for them because they might be thinking of a traditional career, whereas all of a sudden, oh, 100%. you know, you're opening their eyes up to the idea of entrepreneurship, especially when they're young. Yeah, you have less, let's say liabilities or things you have to take care of. Like when you're older, you might have children, you might have other priorities. Yeah. Whereas yeah, when you're, you're young, right. now, now's maybe the chance to take that risk, to try it out, see what entrepreneurship's about. Exactly. So you, so you hit the nail on the head. I think part of, you know, and, and this is where I was saying we initially thought it was very simple. Let's just do a three month program, but you, there's no point doing a three month program if half the student population doesn't really understand what entrepreneurship is to begin with. So there was a lot that uh, we needed to do on the inspirational side. And, you know, that's actually, again, where the Sharjah Entrepreneurship Festival, which is one of our offerings, uh, came up. So we hold that on an annual basis. It, it, again, the, our, initially when we started the Sharjah Entrepreneurship Festival, it was really meant to be more of a another convening event where, you know, the different uh, parts of the ecosystem come together and discuss what's happening on, you know, seed stage funding and what's happening in different sectors like e-commerce or mobility or whatever it may be. But we, we soon found actually the gap and rather than replicating what others are doing, because that, that gap was actually filled by several other organizations who were holding those events. But the true gap for us was there was no event that really focused on these young uh, change makers. And when you, when it comes to young change makers, what you need to focus on is the mindset. You know, it's not really about having a panel and having VCs on the panel and them talking about what their investment theses are and so on. That's not going to inspire them. They really, and that's why some, sometimes we get questions like, I don't get it. What does, you know, Acon have to do with entrepreneurship or even some of the speakers that we've had. But again, it's really about inspiring the youth and giving them that, uh, resilience, trying to share stories of resilience and ambition and how you know, it, it, success is not a straight line, you know. Um, and uh, the more we can share those honest stories from across different uh, uh, sectors uh, and different spheres, the more we can inspire them. Because another thing that's happening in university is entrepreneurship is seen, oh, it's a business thing. If I'm in the business school, I learn entrepreneurship. But if I'm an artist, it has nothing to do with me. But it's not, right? Entrepreneurship is interdisciplinary and anyone can be an entrepreneur. And so, so that's one of the reasons that we try and bring in folks from, you know, speakers from different spheres, whether they're artists, whether they're musicians, whether they're, you know, business people, whether they're engineers, everyone, everyone, anyone can be an entrepreneur trying to democratize access to entrepreneurship uh, in a sense. So, so that's, uh, that's kind of where the theme of the festival has changed from just being another convening event to really focusing on inspiring the next generation of entrepreneurs. Yeah, I was actually about to ask about that because the types of speakers, they're all inspirational speakers from around the world, actually, like from Gary Vaynerchuk in the past. Yes. This year, you guys had also Vishen yeah. Lakhiani from Mind Valley. Exactly, yes. It's an evolving dialogue. Even the theme, I believe, like from the past, it used to be focusing on hustle, but even that has evolved further to consider yeah. the mindfulness or to consider there, there is a yeah, bit of work-life yeah. balance that does have to occur. And these are things that we're noticing everywhere around the world where entrepreneurship isn't kill yourself yeah, and a, get things done. You need to sustain yeah. yourself. Exactly. 
Again, 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 it's all of these sort of funny false yeah. narratives. I don't know where they where they come from and then they're perpetuated. And you're right. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the reasons that we uh, partnered with Mind Valley in our most recent edition in 2019. We partnered with Mind Valley and actually they had their entire own stage where they had their own programming happening. So obviously Vision spoke and uh, a few of their uh, the speakers from Mind Valley spoke on the main stage, but they had programming happening throughout uh, throughout the day on their own stage as well. Again, trying to reinforce. And, and it's something that even I struggle with. I mean, the, I think uh, generally uh, meditation and mental health as a whole and self-care, uh, not as an act of self-indulgence, but as an act of self-preservation and how important that is. As you said, uh, we were so used to uh, you know, this narrative of just hustle and do whatever it takes, but uh, it's, it's impossible to do that without engaging in some form of self-care. And so, yeah, it's important that we, again, are, are teaching them uh, or giving them that right, the right foundation. And, uh, and that's why we've partnered with organizations like Man Valley to provide them both uh, the skills, the soft skills uh, that they require, the mindset that they require, as well as the hard skills uh, that they require. So we also often have workshops that are happening in, uh, in the festival where they can either learn whether it's workshops on coding or whether it's workshops on particular skills. So it's both inspiration and it's learning that happens at the event. Yeah, I think it's a well-needed festival for our ecosystem. Definitely. Thank you. I hope I hope you're able to attend the next version. This year we had to, um, because of COVID, we won't be holding uh, the event and we've actually redeployed uh, the funds uh, that we would usually use towards the event to create the Sharjah or the Shiraz Startup Solidarity Fund. Um, and so we've announced that about a couple of months ago. So it's a $1 million fund that provides grants to our startups that are, that have been impacted by COVID as well as supporting startups that are working on potential solutions to the pandemic or, um, on industries that will be particularly relevant post, uh, COVID as well. But hopefully in 2021, we'll be back in person and, uh, we look forward to hosting you as well. You went on to what I was actually going to ask you. I was going to say oh. yeah, for a podcast, it'd be strange for us in 2020 not to talk about COVID. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask you about the solidarity fund. Yeah. So you, you just hinted at it. The focus is on startups, one affected by COVID, but also those working towards solutions. Yes. Yes. So, so the ones that are, so there, there are two parts to it. So the first part of the fund, as you said, uh, is focused on our portfolio of startups. We never actually went into this, but uh, as a whole, since 2016, Shira has graduated over 120 startups that have gone on to raise around $86 million uh, in investment, have created over a thousand jobs and uh, generated over $65 million uh, in revenue. So of those startups, some of them were particularly impacted uh, by COVID, partly because maybe the industry was impacted, let's say if it was the startup is in the travel industry, or partly because... Um, you know, they were about to fundraise and they, you know, COVID hit. And they, so in terms of runway, they weren't in a great cash position. Uh, so we wanted to be able to uh, help extend their runways. And that's what we've been doing. So we're extending grants of up to uh, 50,000 dirhams uh, to uh, startups. So we've actually received already over 40 applications and we continue to review them and then disperse uh, grants on a, on a rolling basis. 
Um, and then the other half is uh, something that we'll be announcing in the coming, coming months, which is basically a competition uh, that is going to be focused on two tracks. One is the health tech track, and ideally with a little bit of a focus on, uh, on COVID and potential future situations that are similar future pandemics. Um, so what, we, what sort of technologies... Uh, we could use uh, to provide better uh, digital health, you know, whether those are testing technologies, whether it's contact tracing, whatever it may be. Um, and then the other track that we're looking at and a track that is obviously now we've realized um, or not realized, but it's been kind of reaffirmed that uh, is, is uh, an industry that is of strategic importance. And when it comes to national resilience is obviously food security. And so we'll be looking at sort of the agri-tech, food tech uh, track as well as a second track. Um, by the way, this is, it hasn't been announced. I'm just giving you a, a sneak peek. You know, it will be announced in, in the coming uh, okay. month or so. Um, and we expect to announce the winners around September or October this year. And what we'd like to do is, you know, again, we'll be providing grants to the winners and then having them come to Sharjah and set up over here and helping them grow from Sharjah uh, to the rest of the region and ideally the world, obviously. You also are involved with the Sharjah Research Park to some degree. Yeah, they're close partners. I mean, they're one of our uh, founding partners as well. And uh, we will actually, so we've got two hubs, two physical hubs at the moment. One, like I said, at the American University of Sharjah, one at the University of Sharjah. Our HQ will now be moving to the Sharjah Research Technology and Innovation Park, but we do work very closely with them. And in fact, um, on this competition that I mentioned, the COVID competition, they are our strategic partners. So those startups that w that will be selected will be coming uh, coming to Sharjah and will be based in the in the park. So let me get to Young Arab Leaders. You serve as the vice chairwoman. What is Young Arab Leaders, and what is your involvement with them? So uh, Young Arab Leaders, again, like I mentioned earlier, is a network that was established in two thousand and four. Um, it's basically a network of regional uh, leaders from across the Arab world, although it, our chapter here, primarily the, uh, the members are from, uh, from the UAE. Uh, not necessarily Emirati, but based in the UAE. Um, I guess the the mission is twofold. One is to give those leaders an opportunity, uh, much like the Aspen Institute, to convene, um, to have discussions, to exchange ideas, and to contribute to their own professional development. But at the same time, it's also an opportunity for those leaders to give back to the next generation, to the youth, whether it's through uh, guidance, through mentorship or other opportunities that they provide. So um, I would say it's a community of leaders that uh, get together to, for their own growth as well as to give back to the next generation. So it's through mentorship, guidance, uh, something you hinted at before with Khairat that sometimes is missing. But this is beyond just Emiratis, right? This is beyond just Emiratis, yes. So this is uh, any Arab that's based. Uh, I, we actually, funnily enough, we do have members in our chapter that are from outside the UAE, uh, from Oman and Saudi Arabia, and they actually travel uh, often to the UAE to attend our events. But the the vast majority of uh, of our members are yeah, they're based here in the UAE. And. Speaking of, you know, the whole COVID situation, do you have any advice for young Arab entrepreneurs out there who might feel a bit disheartened in the current climate? Well, I think it's uh, it's definitely normal to feel disheartened. Nobody saw this situation coming. You know, we've all been told you know, the, on, about the importance of scenario planning and so on. But I can say even that we never foresaw anything like this uh, coming along. This is not your... 
typical recession. But that said, having lived through other recessions, I think the first thing to remember is that uh, this too will pass. And, you know, in the interim, actually, funnily enough, in many ways, I do feel like it's passing a lot faster than we thought it would initially. You know, when we, when, if, if you had asked me this question two or three months ago, you know, we weren't, we had very little visibility on when things would come back online, when things would resume again. But uh, it's, it's interesting that things have actually come back to normal. We're back to a hundred percent now, um, in, in just a couple of months. So it's good to see that we moved quickly from that respond phase to the recover phase. So I'm hoping that that will, you know, speaking of disheartened entrepreneurs, hopefully that will give them a little bit of confidence. Uh, but in the interim, I, I think the advice that we've been giving our entrepreneurs is basically, you know, stay lean, stay agile, keep your costs low, preserve your cash where possible. Um, another big thing, I think, in the ecosystem as a whole, which that, that focus wasn't there for the past couple of years. Which the, the focus over the past couple of years was just how much can you raise and what are the valuations? Um, and that's something that we've tried to stay away from in Sharia. And I think something that we've always focused on is you need to have healthy unit economics. You need to have a path to profitability, even if that takes a while. So we'd rather take the slow and steady approach, but make sure those fundament, fundamentals are in, um, are in place. And then the other thing I would say is, um, it's, and this is something that, again, we've seen with our, uh, with our own entrepreneurs, our own portfolio, is that, you know, with every crisis, there comes opportunity as well. And there have been some really interesting opportunities that have uh, resulted as a, as a, you know, as a result of this situation, as a result of the market failure. And if you can position yourself in a way to take advantage of those opportunities, uh, there may be much to gain. So we've had, we've had some entrepreneurs who have actually temporarily pivoted. And one of the examples that I recently posted about on social media was uh, 3D Innova, who's one of our 3D printing startups. She uses 3D printing primarily for educational purposes, you know, in schools. Uh, but when this uh, when this COVID situation happened, she actually pivoted to uh, to start printing face masks for couriers, for drivers, um, and so on. So I think there are so many opportunities uh, that can come out of uh, any crisis like this. Um, and then coming back to what we've said earlier, to kind of take the time to also just be kind to yourself and not be too hard on yourself. Uh, like I said, this is something that none of us saw coming. And the only way to really get through this is to stick together and have sort of a communal response to, to this crisis and to remember our shared humanity and to be able to really support each other as much as possible. At the end of the day, we have to remember this is a shared experience. We're all feeling the effects. We're all in it together. Exactly. Exactly. So I'll move on to our rapid fire questions. These can be very short answers or longer, depending on whatever you, you want to say. It's up to you. Okay. So if we could sure. give you a billboard on Sheikh Zayed Road going towards Sharjah or going towards Abu Dhabi, either direction, you can put yeah. anything on it, just not promoting anything you're involved with. If there's a message you could put out there for <laughs> okay. as long as it's not an ad for young Arab leaders, <laughs> Shara, Endeavor, yeah. Aspen Shara, Institute, yeah. as long as it's not an ad for any of those guys. If it's a message yeah. from you to the people visiting the UAE, yeah. living in the UAE, what would you like to say? Oh, that's a tough one. The sentence that's coming to mind, I watched, uh, I guess you could call it a documentary or a short film uh, on YouTube recently. I don't know how I came across it. I didn't really <laughs> intend to watch it. It just came up and I started watching it and I just, you know, and I ended up, yeah, watching it. It was about an hour and a half. Uh, it's, you, you know, Wayne Dyer. I don't know if you know Wayne Dyer. Yeah. So, so it was basically a movie called uh, The Shift. 
that he's created. And in it, he kind of, you know, shares his advice. And one of the things that he said that just really stood out to me and it's just stuck with me since then is don't die with your music still in you. That's a nice one. Um, and I, I think that's uh, probably a message. Yeah. It's something that I shared with the team as well after I saw that. And I said, you know, all of us are here. We're all on our own path, but uh, And you never know where it's going to lead you, but whatever happens, don't settle for less than the life that you were destined to live. Don't compromise on that. And I think that's uh, something that uh, we should all try and remember. I think I think that would be good use of that advertising yeah, space. Yeah, I think it's a think? nice one. It yeah. makes people think. It makes you really question some things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's a book that you have gifted or if there's a book that you do tend to gift to people, what book mm. would you recommend or a gift to be honest i don't um i don't often gift books to people but uh, when i do it's rarely business books or non-fiction books it's it would typically be a novel that i've read uh, that i've enjoyed you know i, I recall for example uh, 40 rules of love was one of them or a fine balance or you know uh, love in the time of color some of the some of the novels that i've read um if i feel that the person that i'm gifting to gifting it to might you know be similarly impacted by the story. Yeah. That's probably what I'd share, but it's rarely going to be, you know, uh, a business book or any sort of a book that dispenses life advice or anything like that. Um, so it would mostly, and if I'm not a big fan of the person, I may, you know, give them a little bit of James Joyce or Proust <laughs> or some of the authors that I don't particularly enjoy. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it would typically be uh, definitely it would be fiction um, for sure. All right. What is your favorite documentary, if you have one? I don't have a favorite, but I can tell you what I've been... It's funny how uh, in, in, during this lockdown... By the way, I haven't been out since the 15th of March. No joke. I really have not been out at all. At um, all? Since the 15th. At all. Like zero. Wait, once. Okay, if I have to be completely <laughs> transparent, once to the hospital to get tested. Okay. Uh, that's it. But other than that, at all. So I've been at home uh, a lot um, and we're on, you know, we're in June yeah. now. So it really has been, it's been over three months. So I, I've, I have watched a little bit of uh, uh, Netflix and uh, some of the documentaries, I, I would say that there are two kinds of documentaries that I've been watching. One is nature which I never usually would be the kind of person who watches National Geographic uh, or anything like that. But the last trip I took before, um, before this, again, this COVID situation was to Botswana with actually, uh, funnily enough, Munel um, who's the chairperson and who's also a chairperson of YAL and who's also a good friend. And we, you know, we went to Botswana, we went to the Okavango Delta and it's just one of those places. You just need to see it to believe it. And, um, I, I've just got uh, almost a new um, sort of sense of appreciation for nature and the role that we need to play in protecting this nature. And, and it's obviously, since I've been at home, I'm missing it even more. Um, and so funnily enough, a lot of the uh, documentaries that I've been watching have been two, uh, two or three were actually on the Okavango specifically. I think one was called <laughs> Into the Okavango and one was called River of Dreams, but such beautiful documentaries. I mean, the, the, the landscapes and the animals, it's just unbelievable. And I'm not great at articulating it, but it's just one of those things that you really need to see. I watched a few as well. I did, it led to Planet Earth and a little bit of David Attenborough as well and so on. So that's one, I guess, one category of documentaries that I've been watching, the nature, that. And then the other one has been... Uh, 
focused on uh, leaders, but unintentionally. It's just that, again, they came up. But I guess you may have even watched them. Um, what's the Michael Jordan one? Um, the Last Dance. The Last Dance, exactly. And then Michelle Obama becoming. Yeah, becoming, based on her book tour. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think just reflecting on these different uh, leadership styles and the way people have, you know, I looked at my, I watched Michael Jordan's uh, the, uh, the Last Dance. I watched it. I almost binge watched it. I think I watched it in a day. <laughs> I was just so infatuated by the way he went about it. Yeah, it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. And, you know, I, I'm not sure necessarily it was, is, I, I, I kept asking myself at the end is, is, but is he happy? Was he happy with the way that, you know, he led his life? And I'm sure, I'm sure he's proud, but uh, it definitely, they, they definitely help you ask a lot of questions and help you reflect on your own life and your own style and your own leadership style. Um, but that's been, yeah, another, I guess, category of documentary that I've been uh, watching. And then just recently, um, I guess with the, especially with the Black Lives Matters, uh, is uh, a documentary called um, 13th. Have you heard? Of it? Yeah, the 13th, yeah, about the 13th Amendment. Yeah. 13th, yeah, exactly. Um, so that was uh, really, again, I think it was important for me to watch that and, you know, just to get a better understanding of like, the history of racial injustice and inequality in the U.S. And um, so that was, uh, that was something that I watched more recently and highly recommend as well. So Netflix documentaries it is. <laughs> Netflix, exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly. What's one dream initiative you would like to see the UA do? And when we say dream initiative, we don't just mean, okay, do a new program. I'm, I'm referring to something like moonshots, you know, the, the outlandish type of dreams. If they could do, if they came to you and yeah. said, uh, what should we do? What would you tell them to dream for? I think the funny thing is the UAE is just known for moonshots. There's very little like it. I know. <laughs> so it's hard. To- <laughs> it's like, <laughs> they've got a mission to Mars at the moment. I mean, how far can I? <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a tough question. But look, I think the UAE is so much like, or I should say the Shiraz is so much like the uh, Shiraz is inspired by the UAE. The UAE itself is an incubator for dreams, whether, you know, those are dreams and hopes of individuals or organizations or even nations, you know, and I think my, uh, just the dream initiative or my, you know, my hope for the country is that it continues to be that, uh, uh, that incubator. Yeah. It continues to provide that enabling environment for anyone from around the world uh, that wants to make the impossible. And it, it, it's only the UAE could have a ministry uh, called the Ministry of Possibilities yeah. because it, it truly is a country of possibilities, you know, and I hope that it continues to do that. I love that, you know, we, we talk about in, in, shara, in Shara or in the entrepreneurship ecosystem, we talk about building an enabling environment for entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, if the UAE can continue to do that, building uh, an enabling environment for these hope makers and change makers and uh, dream makers, you know, an environment that is tolerant and that is compassionate and that is inclusive, then I think that, you know, we're, we're set for success. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the potential of our, you know, of our younger generation and the impact that they can have, not just in our region, but around the world. Do you have any last words of wisdom for our listeners? After all that, yeah. <laughs> there's no words. <laughs> oh, I, I, I can't think of any more words of wisdom, to be honest. Um, I don't know, just... Uh, uh, life is, I think one thing that maybe again, just because of the uh, COVID uh, situation, it just makes you rethink so much and gives you so much perspective on what really matters in life and what doesn't. Um, and so, you know, I think just a reminder that uh, life is short, life is fragile, you know, be yourself, you know, 
do what it is that your heart wants to do. And at the same time, remember that we're all interconnected, we're interdependent, that you no know man is an island. Um, and to so do your part for humanity as well. Lastly, where can our listeners go to get more information about Shara, about Yal? Sure. I think any, any well, your favorite social media platform, whichever one that may be, but I would say both are most uh, active on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So it's either uh, Young Arab Leaders, I believe is the handle. Um, and then Shara Sharja is the uh, mm-hmm. Shara handle. Okay. All right. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. You can find this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com slash Najla. That's N-A-J-L-A. We'd love to connect with you. So follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress.